Welcome to WLNM, the web novel and manga review hosted by Zeke Shanguris. Welcome to WLNM, the web, light novel, and manga review. The podcast dedicated to bringing our listeners, the artists and writers that are part of this amazing renaissance of creativity, giving us stories to entertain and inspire us. We welcome Timid the Writer, author of A Tapestry Ablaze, Volume 1. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, Timid, um, from the description that we we have on your website and Amazon, uh, A Tapestry Ablaze uh, takes place in the American South during the mid-70s. I will say, what an amazing time, because that's when I was born. Bicentennial child. So... Um, how is it, uh, how are you trying to capture, uh, the 70s, which is an interesting era in itself, um, in, uh, is it, did you get the idea from Disco Inferno? Let's go there. I did not. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's funny you should mention, like, you were born in that time. I was a child of the 2000s, and, uh, because of the 30-year cycle, one of the big things in the 2000s was 70s nostalgia, and I just, I love the aesthetic of the 70s. And I think for um, the story that I'm trying to tell, which is maybe a bit more in touch with nature, it just fits really perfectly. Um, anything past that, like the 80s, the 90s, feels a little too industrial, if that makes I, sense. I, I can see that. Well, I can see that. Uh, the uh, 80s has always been... Um, was always looked back on or even at the time as one of extreme consumerism only seconded by the extreme consumerism of the mid nineties with the tech, uh, with the economy going gangbusters during the tech market. So yeah, uh, the seventies, you know, the seventies were not a super economic era for the United States. And so everyone did think, Hmm, reuse recycle because it, it was a great, we couldn't get, you couldn't get a new thing next the next day. If something breaks, you fixed it. So yeah, I, I kind of get that. But now let's let's focus in after the seventies nostalgia on um, what is it a little bit about our uh, protagonist? Uh, tell me about how um, he fits into this world that uh, you've created. Sure. Um, so you know, in this world, the big difference between it and our version of Earth is the presence of monsters and magic. And I sort of always wanted that to be a rarity. And so um, Ren and his family live in a very small town, similar to the small town I grew up in, where they are sort of the only people who fight monsters and have access to this magic. And so... Um, that sort of compounds with the isolation that he's feeling. And uh, when he gets a chance to go to the Slayers College and be around more people who kind of understand and get it, uh, he jumps at the opportunity. Okay. So uh, it sounds almost like a, in a way, um, let me go with the, maybe the nerd experience of, especially when you grow up in a small town and say you like something such as, I don't know, anime that people don't necessarily have a word for and you don't meet other anime lovers until you, uh, 
until you leave town and go to school. It, it sounds like a little bit of an analog to that for me. Um, is, uh, is, is that like a theme that you're trying to get to or is it, is it just more of a, the way the story has evolved? Yeah, I think there's definitely the theme of going to a bigger place and just meeting different kinds of people and carving out a place where you can sort of belong with that expanded population. Because um, I I feel like you're sort of touching on your own experience of liking anime and then going somewhere else, and that was my experience too. And so he's, his journey is sort of built on my own for that purposes okay tell me about um a little bit about the world building here okay so we've got uh, a mid-70s america uh monsters do exist now is it like coming across an alligator here in florida or is it more of a they are ransacking the countryside yeah um Monsters are sort of a stand-in for intense wildlife. Okay. And so there's sort of a spectrum of how poignant and pertinent they are to a person's life. In a smaller town like Wrens, they're a bit bigger of a deal because, you know, you have a very rural population and woods are everywhere and you never know what's sort of lurking in them. But in a bigger city, it's kind of an afterthought and you could go your whole life without ever really needing to know about them. That's a, that's a really uh, cool way of putting it. Um, because I mean, hell you could fast forward 40 plus years and uh, focus on how um, the suburbanization and the lack of wildlands have uh, encroached upon nature and the monster habitat. Yeah, um, a very early version of this story, you know, like two years before I put anything to paper, was sort of serving as an allegory for how um, rural communities view the city as like rejecting and sort of killing off their way of life. Um, And I think that sort of evolved into this huge disconnect between like what is the rural experience and what is the city experience yeah I, 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 and and i hear that and it's and i can see and i have seen it because i've you know i grew up in the country and worked in the cities and i i've seen there are those who can reject the the outdoors the country way of life but in regard it's it's actually a symbiotic relationship you can't have a city without the country. You can't have the two areas because you don't, if you don't have someone producing the food, you can't have people living in a city. Everyone's got to produce their own food. And so, yeah, it's, it's really a symbiotic relationship in a lot of ways. So, Hey, um, now tell me, you know, going back to that, what, what was kind of like that first spark? Was there something that you saw that, made you think you know what there's there's a disconnect between these two places uh you know it's country versus city or city versus country is there something that that kind of sparked that um that transition that's something that you saw um you know i wish the story was that 
<laughs> grandiose. <laughs> it's really, it's kind of, I think the dumbest way I've ever started a story. Um, I kind of figured out what I wanted the main character's power set to be. Okay. And then worked backwards. <laughs> hey, we all have our process. Trust me on that one. We all have our processes and ideas come from the strangest places. So you 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 wanted to have a, a, a you wanted to have a cool her- hero. You wanted to have an interesting character, which character development is great because some of us are really good at world building and the others are really good at character development. And when you can do both at the same time, um, you've got a hit on your hands. <laughs> but that's the hope. That's the hope, exactly. So um when did you going back even further when did you first begin telling stories are you somebody who has always told stories or did you come into it later in life yeah um growing up in that really small town i was a mile away from the nearest kid my age um i didn't like that kid he hit me (laughs) (laughs) So I spent a lot of time, you know, sort of by myself. And one of the ways I would pass the time is walking around my front yard, talking to myself um, and sort of coming up with these stories. And that was sort of just how I passed the time. And it was a good creative outlet. And so I guess I've kind of always been doing that. Kind of like that power of imagination is the is the way to entertain yourself. Yeah. Yeah. The number of adventures my brother and I went on. Um, because our, our property especially butted up against the Appalachian Trail. And so there was, you know, miles of woodland. And the adventures that we would go on, from everything to reenacting the opening scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark to, you know, watching a, a World War II film uh, and then reenacting that. It Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for that ability to get out there and you're not just interacting with nature but you're creating a world onto itself and I've, uh, there's a lot to be said for kids who have that experience some say that we they don't understand how is it that i didn't have a uh, atari until i was 18 <laughs> and you know i had them my kids in class play uh these 2600 era games and they're like oh my god <laughs> they, they don't eight bits and all you do is move <laughs> left and right? Really? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, and I didn't get to do this until I was 18. So, yeah. And if I wanted to play a real video game, I had to go all the way to the arcade 30 minutes away. So, Did you yeah. then have to explain what an arcade was? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did explain to them. I did the, the conversion. on. It cost uh, 25 cents to play Pac-Man. In today's dollars, I'm paying a dollar to play one game Pac-Man, which is just insane if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. A, a dollar to play Pac-Man, and that only bought you like, like one life, right? Yeah, it, well, you could three lives technically, but you know you're you're going out quickly in the first one. You know you're mm-hmm. you're just so you're really only getting two lives because, but oh dear yeah I, I, having to explain you know this was this was a, the epitome of gaming entertainment going to the tasty freeze and playing uh playing pac-man and listen, literally listening to a jukebox that played records 
I mean, because, you know, when you grow up in a small town, everything's at least 20 years behind the times. Yeah, yeah. My uh, The pizza place that was in the park near where I lived had uh, old machines, but I don't think they had very many video games. They might have had like Space Invaders, but they must have like Skee-Ball and that sort of yeah. thing. So, yeah, it was very much 20 years old, probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's just like today, but 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, so what inspires you to write? What made you take that, you know, many of us think about, you know, come up with ideas and think about stories, but what really made you decide, you know what, I'm going to put put pen to paper and, and put my ideas out there? Um. <clears throat> I would like to say it was for some some noble cause that I had some story that I needed to tell people. But really, I I really like talking about my ideas and stories to people, and I realized the only way I could consistently do that is if um, I got the story in front of more people. Okay, uh, you know, my my fiance doesn't have the patience to hear about all of my ideas all the time, so. <laughs> I got. I got to spread that around. Yes, I, I can understand. I feel guilty. Uh, the uh, the punishment that uh, I give my wife occasionally over uh, when I come up with an interesting plot or something and need to tell her about it. She was the editor of my first book, um, and that took uh, over a year of just systematically sitting down every week at coffee. And she would read a section and make corrections, and it would take us about an hour and a half each week to do the uh for her to truly edit it and uh i can't give her enough um thanks and credit for being patient with me to do that because my writing though it has evolved and gotten better grammar was not always my strong suit (laughs) yeah um the first thing i really wrote and edited and tried to put in front of other people um this was years before Ada, a couple. My now fiance, then girlfriend, hated it. <laughs> she she handed it back to me and said, three out of five stars. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it, it it's good when we can get that honest support. Cause you know, if your loved one doesn't like it and you know, gloss it over and say, Oh, this is wonderful you know you're in trouble <laughs> yeah 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 so um what uh what are you most proud of in your work i mean is is there something that you wrote in there that you're like yeah i hit that ball out of the park this was the scene was amazing uh, is there something that you've done in that uh that you're like yeah i i nailed it i would say um fights I am, I think I am best at writing fights. Uh, I sort of cut my teeth with writing on a um, role-playing site that was based on Bleach. And so it was a ton of fights and I really learned how to write action and make it feel engaging. And everyone that's read um, A Tapestry Blaze Volume 1 and gotten back to me says they loved the fights and... I'm just, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, see, it, that that is one of those areas that I'm definitely weak on is the actual action in a scene. Um, 
and it, it, it could just be my 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 Quaker upbringing. <laughs> the, the, that's why uh, fights don't seem to work very well. But um, yeah, it it's. I mean, do you do you feel that, you know, do you like? I'm trying to think of the best way, but do you do you like to narrate the way it goes? Kind of like more of a, you know, boxing commentator. Do you see yourself as like the commentator at the ringside calling the fight, or is it you? you do you want to be more immersed in it as you're trying to tell it? Like he throws the punch, I you know, I feel the air, I move to the left, kind of thing. Yeah, um, definitely the latter. I have a bit of a penchant for observant characters who are kind of strategic fighters. And to me, the most interesting part of that is not what's happening, but why it's happening and how it's being perceived. And so getting sort of right there over the fighter's shoulder, the protagonist getting in his head, uh, I think it's definitely like, very engaging and enjoyable and my favorite part about writing fights. Okay. Hey, uh, so uh, now my, now time for my favorite question. Do you write yourself into a corner? Do you ever feel like you've written yourself into a corner and you're like, how the hell do I get out of here? Cause I just left myself with no place to go. Um, sometimes. I think I will write scenes into corners. Um, I haven't yet hit a spot where I've written my whole plot into a corner. You're lucky. <laughs> well, that's the, the benefit of thinking about your story for two years before you start writing it is you have a lot of time to iron out things. <laughs> um, but no, I actually, I kind of enjoy writing scenes into corners. Uh, I think it's really telling to put a character in a situation where they don't really know what, what they're going to do or how they're going to get out of it. And then you make them get over that. Um, And you're, you're literally putting yourself into the shoes of your character uh, and putting them into a corner and then being like, all right, how are we going to get out of this one now? So, yeah, Yeah, uh, I'll put myself in situations where, you know, I don't write for a couple of days because I'm thinking, how would this character try to get out of this? And that's the most fun for me is sort of coming up with getting over that because I feel this such a strong connection um, to the characters in the world because I'm, you know, like you said, putting myself in those shoes. So thinking about, you know, those, those difficult to, to write areas are you and you said you talk, you thought about the story for about two years so are you a a plot like i've outlined everything that's i believe is going to happen or are you more of a discovery writer where you have the scenario and then you see where it leads you yeah i would say i'm definitely the former um before i start working on a volume i plot it out outline it get uh the roadmap as it were, but I think if you plot things out too much, then you're not really writing. You're kind of just checking boxes. Okay. So I'll definitely get in a scene and then start doing discovery. Um, It would be to keep with like the road trip analog. It would be like, I know I'm going to stop in, I don't know, Tulsa, 
but I don't know where I'm going to eat in Tulsa. And that's the fun. Okay. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's, it's kind of the hybrid between the discovery process and the plot and the uh, hardcore outliners. Cause I, I've interviewed some who they outline every little bit. And then some who are like, I come up with a scenario and then I just see where it leads. And both are very interesting ways to write. I, but I think like you, most of us are, are hybrids in that regard where we, we have an idea where we want the story to go, but we're not exactly sure how we're getting there. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a, a very, um, very classic way for most of us to, to write stories is by doing, you know, we know that, you know, like you said, it's, the road trip analogy is perfect. You know, I know I'm going to go, uh, I know I'm going to go to Baltimore. I know I'm going to eat crab cakes, but I just don't know where I'm going to eat the crab cakes from and how good they're going to be. So, uh, so what, um, you said you liked uh, writing fight scenes. Um, so what, uh, what authors, uh, have influenced your writing? I mean, what, what, what have you read that has been like, this resonated with me, this style resonated with me? Uh, what have you found? Yeah, I mean, um, growing up when I did, I was very much a child of the big three Shonen series. So okay. um, you know, Kishimoto, Kubo, Oda all put their thumbprint on me and as I mentioned earlier, I cut my teeth in a Bleach RP site, and I would probably not be here if it wasn't for Taita Kubo's work. Um, so the fight scenes kind of from all three of them. Um, Oda's world building never ceases to amaze me because One Piece is, in a way, so formal, for formulaic, but never ceases to be engaging because every arc is come to place place has problem place has people whose problems we care about solve problem and to do that he, so consistently makes us a very very different and very uh very different very enriching problem uh, a very enriching place like he does create a very good sense of world yeah it's in a way one piece isn't one world but you know 30 worlds that are loosely connected and there's a few stinkers, but on the whole, amazingly done. Um, other than that, I would say my favorite mangaka is Inio Asano. He wrote Oyasumi Pun Pun. And that's just the best manga I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> it's, see, you know, it for a lot of us, um, it, it really does it really does depend on um, when you're growing up and what you're first exposed to uh, on what ends up being your favorites. Uh, I heard someone always, someone say that with Saturday night live, the best cast was always the best, the cast that was when you were in high school, because that's when you first started watching SNL. And so that's, and that's when you first realized, you know, the extent that comedy could take. And so that first cast that you watched when you were in high school is always the best one in your mind. And I think that goes a lot with uh, how, what you were exposed to. I mean, my, 
uh, I am forever a Mecca fan because of Shoji Karomori and Macross. I mean, that was the first, tr first series that really made an impact on me. And um, I am watching Macross, you know, <laughs> still. So, and looking forward to whenever the next film comes out or, you know, what merch do they have, even if it's for a character that's, you know, 30 years old already. So, yeah, it, it, what we what we seem to uh, get exposed to is it, it, when we're introduced to something really seems to stick with us. And uh, I mean, I know a kid right now, one of my classes, he's a 10th grader. He just started reading manga. And he's reading, I think he's reading, I think he's reading Bleach right now. And he's like flying through the, going through the library and flying through all the volumes of Bleach. And I know that that's going to be like, you know, his number one, uh, his number one story because that's what got him into it. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like there are formative years, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No matter when we start into it. Yeah. 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 Your formative, your formative otaku years. <laughs> yes. One day, one day, even though you're 30, you'll grow up to be a good otaku one day. Yeah. You know? uh, expounding on the, the glories of whatever series happens to be great at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, and with any luck, you'll um, only get bullied for wearing a Naruto headband in middle school and not <laughs> not at your day job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, so, okay, you love fight scenes. Let, let's move on to some other discussion. Are Are you watching Jujutsu Kaisen? Yes, a million times, yes. So how are you liking the fight scenes in this show? So it's ah, I, words are hard. Um, <laughs> Great to hear from a writer. <laughs> Jujutsu Kaisen makes me wish I knew how to write action better. Um, like I think that writing action is my strength, and Jujutsu Kaisen still makes me want to improve at that. It also makes me wish my story was spookier, um, because the the horror elements and sort of the dark atmosphere i think adds so much to the experience that me taking a bit of a lighter tone i'm not gonna have and i get that but it's, it's sometimes it's about balance you, you want to have that yeah. lighter element well i actually watched a really um great think piece about korean horror <laughs> to go way <laughs> out of left field um, and it talked about how when you watch some Korean horror, you don't hit the horror aspect until like an hour into the movie. And it's because having drama and even comedy makes all the dark stuff hit that much harder. That's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at that. Yeah, because you, you get all at peace and you're like, oh, this is this is nice and peaceful story, you know, and but you're it almost also is adding that my favorite line from Alfred Hitchcock is it's not about the bang. It's about the anticipation of the bang. You know, something's going to happen. And so you're on pins and needles 
trying to figure out when is that going to happen? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. In a way, that 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 idea is it, it it goes along with that where you you're seeing this nice idyllic life and then, well, the shit hits the fan. Yeah, like I saw the movie poster. I know it's going to go bad, but the question is how. Yes, how yeah. and when. Yeah. On the note of uncertainty and anticipation, I just want to say um, Jujutsu Kaisen has mastered the art of a next episode preview. I think it's the the rocky hip-hop-ish beat that they use, but I never fail to get hyped out of my seat watching <laughs> that 10-second clip of like, this is what's happening next. <laughs> hey, And I think they did a masterful job of you know, you would think that uh, the big guy, you know, you would think those two guys would not, um, you know, from from the outset, you're like, this is going to be an antagonist relationship. But all of all all of it was rendered wonderful when he said, you know, a girl with long legs and a big ass like Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and they became brothers. I mean, yeah, no, it's um. <laughs> One of the first shows to really do that to me and hit me with that kind of bait and switch was um, Fire Force. I don't know if you watched. But you're introduced to this character, Arthur. And in any lesser show, he would be, you know, a minor antagonist, like a recurring rival. But the series establishes, like, the first time you meet him, like, oh, no, Arthur is a dumbass. And we love him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 truly masterful writing when you can do that and you can make a character that seems so abrasive and not in a not in a sundry way yeah uh, yeah not a, not a, not in a soon way but just is is abrasive and you're like this person is going to just be bad news but mm-hmm. you know you realize that they fit in with everybody else there just because they're just a little bit off yeah, and I think one of the great aspects, right, of that is how it plays with your expectation. You know, we thought the big guy whose name is eluding me, I think it's Toto. Um, like I can't yeah. remember. We, you think he's going to be an antagonist because of how he's introduced and how he looks, and it's all playing on your expectation from what you've seen before. And I think that really adds to the masterfulness of the scenario is – the author knows what you're going to think and plays with that. Exactly. It, it really is. It really is great writing in that. And it took me a couple of, it took me a couple episodes to kind of get on the, the, the bandwagon for Jujutsu Kaisen because, you know, I, I'm not into shows where it's, it's a, okay. I, I've enjoyed some battle manga, you know, but where it seems like it's just going to be monster of the week kind of thing just to me gets repetitive really fast. And to me, that's how it seemed to be marketed as. And, you know, so, but enough of my colleagues were watching it enough. The students in my classroom were watching it. I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And then I binged six episodes and I'm like, this is actually very good, uh, very good storytelling. And the animation is spectacular. Um, some of these fight scenes, the 
the number of the number of movements and the number of frames that need to be done. I mean, one minute of uh, one minute of animation is two thousand five hundred frames. So these fight scenes with their uh, all this dynamic movement is just freaking spectacular. That's that's just from a from a creative point of view. That's just amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is that unlike a lot of not necessarily its contemporaries, but its predecessors, Jujutsu Kaisen, as well as the other big uh, spooky shounen right now, Attack on Titan. Yeah. Uh, they aren't afraid to have, you know, like you're saying, that 2,500 frames per minute and have so many people on screen at one time. Yeah. You know, you go back and watch some of the old Dragon Ball Z fights, and it's always a one-on-one fight, and there's so much bolstering and posturing, and a lot of the great modern fights just have none of that, and it's really beautiful because of it. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I don't need, like, you know, 30 seconds of in crouch position, blue flames, and screaming the entire time. <laughs> yeah yeah before you attack uh yeah it's it, it really is impressive I, I i really have to say with that one it it truly is um spectacular with the way they've taken what would generally be if you took looked at the plot a typical shonen you know a typical shonen uh battle manga and then they've they've really done a, a spectacular job at creating something um truly remarkable with how it is uh how it is uh market well not marketed how it is uh distributed to the people like the how it is not distributed is not even the right word how it is <laughs> you'll get there yeah the the final product that they're putting out there the the animation is really what i'm and the storytelling have just come together seamlessly to tell a really compelling story and thinking of compelling stories, um, you have Volume One listed uh, next to uh, next to your title. So uh, I imagine there should be a Volume Two coming out. Yeah, um, I am actually in the middle of working on Volume Two. Uh, I'm in the middle of a rewrite for my second or third draft, um, and I'm really excited for volume two it's a bit more of a shift um minor spoilers uh volume one is sort of an adventure you know there there's a destination in mind and you have a goal and you're trekking to a place very lord of the ringsian okay Um, it's a lot of walking volume two is sort of like okay you you reached your goal you got to the place now what and it shifts Almost to a slice of life story. Um, hey, don't, don't, two. Two is the secret number here. <laughs> okay. The Two Towers, best Lord of the Rings movie. Uh, Empire Strikes Back, best of the original trilogy. Every odd numbered, every odd, every other Star Trek film. It has to be an even-numbered Star Trek film. Is the good one. <laughs> so that second, 
always has the potential to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I think it's better. Like, I think I'm less adept at writing slice of life than I would be at adventure. And I still think that this is better. Um, Going back a bit to what we were talking about, I think sequels can be better and can really blow you out of the water because there's an expectation. Yes. <laughs> and now you have something to play with. Yeah, you you don't have to do all that time with uh, world building. People understand the world you live in at that point. And so you, uh, you have more freedom to work with the characters. And that sequel really makes life easier for the writer to experiment with some things now we have had some really stinkers of sequels like the original sequel to mortal Kombat, <laughs> which was one of the few films i walked i think i only walked out i think that was the first film i ever walked out of was the sequel to the original mortal Kombat film because it was like you went from mortal Kombat, the original which was an amazing hollywood production to the sequel, which felt more like you were watching a Super Sentai show on the big screen. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it was, it, it, yeah, you do have your occasional stinkers, but you don't, you, you are given more freedom because you don't have to explain the rules of how the world works anymore. So that, that does really help. And I really um, wish you luck with uh, your rewrite there because I know that that at times can, uh, be maddening because you're like well why the hell did i write this and then start <laughs> pulling at a thread and then you realize oh my god that thread goes all the way back to chapter one so now i have to change this throughout the entire thing because in order for it to make it work in chapter 10 it's got to also be around in chapter one so it can drive you absolutely crazy but the rewrite is a necessary thing no one no one publishes their first draft just ask an english teacher at least they shouldn't um. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's go with that one. At least you shouldn't. I'd like to give a pair of shout outs. The first going to fellow light novel author, Jerry Hines. Um, his was the first original English light novel that I read and had this huge burden of expectation, but really um, endeared the genre to me. And he personally has been so, so nice to me. Uh, we're Twitter pals. Um the second shout out going to Ian Earl Kana, um, who just does a ton for the OELN community and really came through for me when finding recommendations to get me introduced to the genre. So you guys are great. Thank you so much if you're listening. So um, we can follow you on Twitter at Timid the Writer yes. uh, and find copies of your book. A, blaze, a tapestry ablaze. A, ta a tapestry ablaze. I was going to go with a blaze tapestry. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> tapestry ablaze on Amazon.com. Um, and uh, if uh, you're listening and you like what you hear, uh, please uh, share a link to this program and take a look at the other ones we have to offer. Uh, it gives us the encouragement to keep going and finding uh, conversations with artists, authors, creators, industry pros. Uh, out there and uh, click the subscribe button and until next time keep reading thank you very much thank you this has been a wlnm podcast